You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Season three of Dedication Point is focused on prey species in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. This NCA was established in large part to protect the area's uniquely dense population of raptors. But these raptors couldn't survive without robust populations of prey species. So far this season, we've talked about the keystone species of the NCA, the Paiute ground squirrel, as well as another critically important prey species, the black-tailed jackrabbit. We've also produced episodes about reptiles, insects, and bats in the NCA, examining the role that each group of animals plays in the area's ecosystems. In this, our final episode of the season, we're talking about waterfowl. Our guests for this final episode are Brandon Flack and Zach Hewling from the Idaho Fish and Game Department, along with Aaron Oots from Idaho Power. They'll be talking not just about waterfowl populations in and around the NCA, but also about the CJ Strike Wildlife Management Area. This WMA is surrounded by the NCA and is co-managed by the Idaho Department of Fish and Game and Idaho Power, with assistance from the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I'll also mention that this conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the 6th Annual Snake River Raptor Fest, which took place on June 3rd at Indian Creek Winery and is hosted by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership. So you may hear some background noise coming from our Raptor Fest audience, and we also included one of our questions from the audience in the final episode. We hope that you enjoy this final episode of Season 3 of Dedication Point, recorded at Snake River Raptor Fest 2023. My name's Aaron Oots. I work for Idaho Power Company. I've been there about 27 years, and my current role is leading a mitigation program for the company that that uh, makes kind of mitigates for the impacts of the hydro projects on the wildlife habitat you know, at those given projects. <clears throat> my name is Brandon Flack. I work for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. My current role is the regional technical assistance manager. Um, but prior to that, so I, I cover all of Southwest Idaho, but prior to that, I was the manager at the CJ Strike Wildlife Management Area for almost five years. And I'm Zach Hewling. Um, I'm the current uh, wildlife habitat biologist there at, at CJ Strike WMA and uh, certainly uh, manage the WMA, but and beyond that, um, the habitat, the Bruno Habitat District, which is roughly um, mountain home to Cuna to Nevada. Um, I wonder if we can get an introduction to the CJ Strike Wildlife Management Area for folks who maybe aren't familiar. I mean, has, has anybody here spent any time at CJ Strike in, in the WMA? So a few folks have. For folks who maybe aren't familiar or for some of our listeners who haven't spent any time there, introduce us to this wildlife management area and maybe talk like, you know, a little bit about the designation itself. Like, what does it mean to have an area designated as a WMA? I guess I'll go ahead and start. I, I, I've been there for going on 20 years, so I've, I've been there for quite a, 
quite a bit of its inception. That's Aaron Utz from Idaho Power. It was established by the Department of Fishing Game uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, from what I understand, there was a push back then to establish re- you know, recreation areas for hunting and fishing uh, that were open to public access. At the time, Idaho Power had quite a bit of property in the area associated with the hydropower project and our you know, original mitigation agreement with, with all the natural resource agencies, including fishing game, was to basically hand our properties over to the fishing game so it, to help them uh, set up this, this wildlife management area. Idaho Power owned about 3,000 acres at the time uh, on the shorelines of, of the project. Uh, so I, fishing game took those properties and withheld around 7,000 acres of BLM federal lands and incorporated a few hundred acres of their own state properties. And that resulted in a, an 11,000 acre wildlife management area. Like Aaron described, I mean, the hydropower project that exists down there is the CJ strike dam. And that sits just downstream from the confluence of where the Bruno river and the snake rivers come together. And it, it, creates the CJ Strike Reservoir. So the the wildlife management area is the land around that reservoir, essentially. That's Brandon Flack, the Regional Technical Assistance Manager for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. It's a mix of property ownership, you know, which is pretty unique. Um, I mean, I guess it's not unique to have different property ownership, but to have um, a hydropower company participate in the management of a wildlife management area with a state game agency is is pretty unique so um, that collaboration is is um, great it, it wasn't always that way but um, it has been that way now for most of the time I think that Aaron has been there um, there was some shift in management you know initially it was just fishing game that managed the whole thing and when Idaho Power uh, relicensed the project in 2004 they decided that they wanted to participate in the management of their own lands. And so that's where we came together and started cooperating to, to do that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the area itself, what it looks like, what kinds of recreational activities, you know, folks typically engage in out at CJ Strike, and also like, you know, what kinds of wildlife might folks expect to see when they head out there? Well, from my perspective, it's kind of an oasis. Again, that's Aaron Utz from Idaho Power. You know, much of southern Mm -hmm. Idaho is pretty arid and dry. And, you know, because of the influence of the the Bruno River and the Snake River and, you know, numerous springs and streams in the area, it's it's kind of an oasis. Um, So it attracts lots of recreation, uh, you know, largely hunting and fishing, recreational access, but up to and including, you know, sailboating and wakeboarding and you know everything that a reservoir might attract right but yeah that's that's kind of a brief description of the area yeah so so to just kind of tack on to that i mean again brandon flack from idaho fish and game part of what idaho power has done is create uh some recreation friendly locations right like a lot of the access points to the cj strike reservoir are through idaho power properties so, you know, they have boat ramps and campgrounds and um, they they manage like 95% of that, the camping recreation component there. Um, fish and game, you know, we do have some properties that, that allow for primitive camping and that, and that sort, but 
Um, most of what we deal with and manage on our end would be along the lines of habitat management, but also hunting. That's one of the, the main components, one of the main purposes of having the WMA there. Yeah, just a, a spot to provide sportsman's access. That's Zach Hewling from the Idaho Fish and Game Department. Our primary goal at CJ Strike is um, at the WMA is to uh, maintain and improve habitat for wildlife. And then a close second to that is to provide access for sportsmen to, to recreate, to hunt um, at, the, at these particular properties. A little bit of fishing, um, you know, kind of on CJ Strike WMA proper, mm -hmm. but predominantly that's occurring, the fishing is occurring in the, um, in the reservoir on the rivers. Um, yeah, and then I guess what does it look like, you had asked that, and it's that riparian rangeland transition zone is, is what most of it is. Um, and we also, uh, across the WMA, um, we have ponds that we manipulate, we're able to manipulate water levels um, to achieve some of our management goals, whether it's uh, like that wet, wet soil management where we uh, might draw down uh, at one time of the year and let it grow up and then reflood it, providing um, all sorts of goodies for, uh, for waterfowl species. So There's also um, a lot of agriculture production in this area. Um, you know, most, most of the WMA actually is surrounded by some kind of private agriculture. And, and that, you know, that provides a, a food source for a lot of different critters. But you had mentioned too, Matt, that the, the WMA is essentially encompassed by the NCA. Um, and so, you know, that, that dynamic is interesting where um, we, we do see a lot of birds of prey that use the area. Um, you know, I think we'll get into talking about the different prey species that exist around the WMA. Um, but, but that agriculture component, that private agriculture component that sits outside of the NCA or outside of the WMA plays a role in that as well, particularly for waterfowl. We see a lot of, a lot of um, you know, cornfield use, agriculture use sure. by waterfowl in the wintertime when we have bigger numbers of them around. Right. Uh, they're utilizing those fields as a food resource. So, so yeah, like let's talk about some of the, you know, some of the prey species some of the waterfowl, like the specific waterfowl species that um, folks might see there. And I mean, that's, I assume that when we talk about hunting activity in the WMA, we're primarily talking about waterfowl hunting? Uh, that is one of the major okay. hunting activities. Yep, that and upland game hunting, okay. pheasants in particular. Gotcha. Um, CJ Strike is one of the wildlife management areas across the state where we actively stock pheasants okay. um, there's huge interest in that kind of hunting and although there are wild populations of pheasants in the area the their numbers are not able to sustain that kind of hunting demand sure. so we stock we stock the area with pheasants they they do also become a prey species for raptors i i have video of a of a prairie falcon attacking a rooster pheasant and killing it um yeah, so um, that, 
I think the, the fact that that's kind of an easy food source, but also some of the landscape level things that have happened around the WMA, in particular wildfires that have changed, um, you know, the ecosystem from, from this sagebrush steppe landscape into a grassland has forced the raptors to start looking elsewhere for prey species because the, that sagebrush ecosystem, you know, it's going to support a lot of your ground squirrels, a lot of your jackrabbits, and, and those are the preferred prey items for a lot of the raptors. But when, when they don't have a place to live, then they go away, right? And, and the raptors are still there and have to look for other sources of food. And so it's interesting when we do, <clears throat> when we do go out and stalk in the fall, um, it, it doesn't take very long into the season for the raptors to start to congregate. Like we'll start to see hawks. We've had, I mean, while I've been out emptying boxes of pheasants throughout the properties, um, in the early dawn of the morning, you know, you'll have great horned owls zip past your head, chasing pheasants as they're leaving the box. So they key in on it. It's kind of interesting to just look around at the tops of the trees a couple weeks into the pheasant season and just see how many more hawks and owls are present, you know, it's like ringing a dinner bell. They, they know something easy is gonna be there to eat. So that's pretty interesting. But yeah, so duck hunting, um, pheasant hunting, there is some big game hunting as well. We do have mule deer and, and a small population of white-tailed deer. Um, you know, cotton-tailed jackrabbits, there's seasons for those. So, um, and in certain locations, those are, those are relatively abundant quail uh, California quail is another species, but you know, ducks of all kinds. Mallards are probably the most abundant species, but we see a lot of, you know, a lot of gadwall, a lot of green wing teal um, during the hunting season. And in the summer, we do have, you know, spring and summer, we do have quite a few cinnamon teal and blue wing teal um, around the area as well. And, you know, we've got Canada geese, greater white-fronted geese, snow geese during the hunting season. You can see all kinds of other, you know, waterfowl or, or shorebird species. And that was one thing we didn't talk about as far as recreation. Um, the Idaho Birding Trail has several, uh, several sites at the CJ Strike Wildlife Management Area for birding activities. And I mean, you can see, you know, swans and pelicans and like all kinds of different shorebirds, all kinds of different songbirds. I mean, it's, it's a, those are some really, really cool locations to see some unique uh, bird species. Yeah. Including some oddballs. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty substantial migration corridor for those species. So we'll pick up some oddballs like scoters, uh, long-tailed ducks yep. yeah some things you wouldn't normally expect in that area right right so definitely a, a neat spot for birders who are looking for unusual species during migration time yeah you mentioned uses <laughs> earlier that's you know the uses of the project have, have evolved over time too and and bird watching is you know much more prolific than it was even even 20 years ago i, I want to start talking about what the habitat looks like. You mentioned some of the issues associated with like invasive species and, and, and climate change and, and, and you know habitats shifting in, in the upland areas. I'm wondering what that looks like in the riparian areas that are within CJ Strike WMA. Um, and I know that you guys have been involved in some habitat restoration work. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about like what some of those habitat changes uh, that you've seen, like what do those look like and um, what kind of restoration activities 
do you have going on in the area? I can speak to some of it because our management plan, you know, deals largely in in habitat for wildlife species. And it's, you, you know, it's an interesting story in that, uh, you know, we, we consulted our management activities and actions with, with all the natural resource stakeholders, you know, one of which is a fishing game. So our, our management plan is drafted in, in a way that it gets the input from everybody that might have a stake in the resource, um, in, including the NCA. So, you know, when that management plan is drafted, we take into consideration the needs of, of the area's wildlife and, and, you know, the stakeholders get a chance to comment and, and, and provide their advice and feedback for sure. it. So even though, you know, Idaho Power is a hydroelectric corporation, um, we, we get involved in the habitat management at that level with the with the feedback of, of everyone involved. So you, what you'll see on the Idaho Power properties are focuses on things like wetland management, uh, even even food crop production. Um, at this point, like you said, with the changes we're experiencing and a, a new focus on insects, uh, things like pollinator habitat. You know, of course, everything starts right there. The prey species, you know, are somewhat dependent on those insects that are that are produced with the pollinator habitat, and on up the line. So, that that's predominantly what you see. Of course, it's a reservoir in a wetland environment, so a lot of wet habitats that have to be managed differently than than upland habitats. Yeah, a lot of our riparian area habitat. I mean, we we manipulate quite a bit of that um, with different ponds uh, across the WMA or or even our irrigation systems you know we'll we'll flood pastures and yeah maintain that vegetation um, you know it'll in the spring grow up and we'll um, it provides nesting cover for for waterfowl and all sorts of birds and and then you know some some deer dropping fawns um, on the WMA during that time and and then yeah we'll use cattle as a um, uh, like later in the in the winter early early in the spring we'll use that uh, to clean up some of that biomass because in these riparian areas uh, too much biomass can be a problem where there's just it's inaccessible it gets to a point where it's inaccessible to to anything and that's one thing we've found by using cattle, we can they can get in there and, and clean it up by eating some of it, but also <laughs> they'll make trails and then sure. and then you can access all of a sudden um, people can access, but also critters can access a little bit easier with whether it's predators or or prey, you know. Yeah, so you, you had also asked about um, I don't know restoration activities. Yeah. We we would probably refer to those because this is such a managed landscape we would just probably refer to that as improvements and um you know we there is a lot of hands-on management that has to be done out there 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 was a time where um on certain areas of the wma the the directive was sort of to just let it go wild Mm -hmm. and that produces a situation like zach just described where um it, it just does not things are not useful 
when you do that, right? It's weird because you think, oh, nature will just take its course and do what it does. But, right. um, you know, some of those willow stands would grow up so thick that like, you know, critters can't even get in there to nest in it. Or you have like Phragmites stands or, 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 you know, bulrush that takes over a complete open water area. And, and then it's, it's just a very few species that can utilize that. And, and it becomes useless to a lot of others. And so we have to get in there and do some improvement and regular manipulation to those areas. We try to use natural processes like what Zach talked about before about the, the moist soil management techniques. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to really touch on is that we had talked earlier that about 8,000 acres of the 11,000 is, is BLM land. And so these are withdrawn from the public domain BLM lands that um, Fish and Game and BLM and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have an agreement together to manage. And so um, within that written agreement, there are certain uh, requirements or responsibilities that each agency has in managing those lands. And so we, uh, for example, at the, the Bruno Duck Ponds, which is a stretch of a stretch of um, man-made ponds that that are along the south bank of the Snake River. Um, that was a really inefficient system. So we worked with BLM. We had to do an environmental assessment on that and put that out to public comment and go through that whole process to do those improvements. Ducks Unlimited uh, played a big role in that improvement project. Um, and, and we were able to get a, a NACA grant, <coughs> NACA grant, which stands for North American Wetland Conservation Act, um, to be able to fund that. And so by doing so, we, we were able to upsize our pump. There's, Fishing Game has a water right to be able to use on that. Um, we're able to, to change the, the conveyance system through there. So now we can just put water into the ponds that we want to put water into and leave other ponds dry. And it just allows us to have that ability to manipulate those landscapes um, for the benefit of wildlife. So, you know, we might have one pond that we fill with water. So there's a lot of open water habitat, sort of a refuge, you know, for birds to just loaf out there in the middle of that thing when they need to. And then we'll have another one of the other ponds that will only fill with six inches of water. Right. or 12 inches of water and that provides you know a feeding area it also provides uh, a brood rearing area during the breeding season so and then in the fall when, it, when hunting season rolls around we can also provide um, area for sportsmen to be able to come in and you know leave a place dry if we want them to be able to hunt pheasants in that area or or wet it up if we want to attract ducks to it you know we've been doing this series of interviews you know chatting with experts and sort of asking these questions about um, habitat improvements, but also the effects of those steps that are taken, and you know, asking for sort of like an assessment of you know how are generally how are these prey species doing, right? And that's the next question I have for the three of you is you know if we're talking specifically about waterfowl, um, you know, how are waterfowl populations doing? Yeah. So in in general, waterfowl species are, are doing well, right? Um, and CJ Strike and and Idaho really is is just a stopping point, you know. Just a there, 
Idaho doesn't produce lots and lots of um, waterfowl compared to the flyway, right? Sure. Um, most of these, most of these uh, waterfowl are headed to southern Alberta um, to nest and, and brood rear. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we have a local population of um, of waterfowl that we do produce per year, uh, and most of the waterfowl especially um, huntable waterfowl that is produced in Idaho is also harvested in Idaho. Um, And so, yeah, from a population standpoint, we're, we're not a big player in the flyway. We're, we're a great spot for waterfowl to take a break from a population standpoint. Waterfowl are doing pretty well. Couple exceptions, um, pintails. There's we're seeing declines on those, um, and lesser scop is another one um, that we're seeing some declines. Mallards. We've seen um, like a nine percent decline in the past uh, couple years on like a thirty-year average. My numbers are probably wrong there, um, but they've dipped a little bit, but not alarmingly, I guess. Sure. The answer usually when, when the question is how come populations are struggling regardless of the species, the answer is usually habitat, something habitat related, right? Um, but, but to provide some context here um, for the management of waterfowl, we, we don't just manage waterfowl in Idaho, right? Like this is uh, across, across the continent, there are four main flyways um, that are talked about and, and management occurs at the flyway level. and so. For us, Idaho um, lands in the Pacific Flyway, so we're one of many, many states and federal agencies, including Canada and Mexico, that participate in this flyway management of waterfowl. And so to provide some context to, to how big or small of a player Idaho is in that production of waterfowl, mm-hmm. um, we do band ducks every year mm-hmm. across the state, um, but our quota is 668 mallards that's it like we that's all we need to put out in idaho is 668 bands on mallards we do a lot more than that um we we banned i mean just at cj strike i think in one day we banded eight different species you know and so um we're hitting everything that we can put a band on Mm -hmm. because that just provides us with more information there's monitoring done both of Migratory species that are, you know, aren't breeding here in Idaho, but are just using, you know, the WMA as a stopover spot. But I'm sure some of those individuals that are banded are resident as, as well. Um, so I'm curious about like the process, like how the data is used, right? Like I, I imagine that data that's collected on migratory species that are using the area as a stopover point is like used for like a broader sort of research goal and is that data is like integrated in with data collected at a variety of other sites throughout the stopover. This is flyway level management, right? Mm-hmm. The decisions made about how many of how many birds of each or individuals of each species and what sex that a hunter can harvest during the waterfowl season is a flyway decision. Yeah, it's set at a federal level and this is where the US Fish and Wildlife Service plays a, a really important role because 
we're talking about a species that crosses state boundaries. So there has to be coordination and collaboration with all of the states that are in the flyway um, because, because otherwise you would have this really disproportionate level of take of certain species in one state. And if, and if it was just a free for all, you know, where it was like, you can kill seven ducks every day. It doesn't matter what species. I mean, you might wipe out pintails if that were the case. Right. And so, yeah, so the banding, we, like I said, we, we banned the time period when we banned, um, kind of tells us that most of the birds that we banned are, are breeding here in Idaho, right? Like, so we're, so we're banding in August, you know, we can start banding in July, but typically we're banding throughout the month of August. And then like the first week or so, 10 days into September, um, the way we, the way we band is we use bait, we use crack corn, right? And that is what attracts the birds to the trap. Um, and then once we've trapped the birds, we take them out one at a time. We determine the species, the age and the sex of the bird. And then we put a numbered aluminum band on their leg. And so when that bird is relocated at some point in its life, meaning somebody could see that bird standing on land and notice that it has a band. Mm -hmm. Someone else who's banding could recapture that same bird alive and write down the number. And that counts as a recapture or a hunter could harvest that bird. And there's the, there's through the bird banding program, a hunter or any individual that comes across a band, you know, even if it's the bird died of natural causes and they have to find this dead bird, Mm with a band, they can enter that band number online and it, it produces a certificate that tells that person where that bird was banded and when. And so with that information, we can get a, a pretty good idea along, you know, I mean, if you're doing this across the flyway in all the states, you can get a pretty good idea of like how populations are doing. You can get a pretty good, good idea of like what harvest looks like. Um, and then you couple that with the summer surveys that are done on the breeding grounds and then also the the wing uh the wing bee or the wing return program you know so the fish and wildlife service also selects randomly selects hunters across the flyway they send them a whole bunch of wing envelopes and they tell them for every single bird you harvest please remove the wings put them in this envelope and mail them back to us and there's a place a repository in california where those go and then biologists from across the flyway get together once a year at what's called the Pacific Flyway Wing Bee, and you go through all of those. I've, I've been able to go to that twice now, and I mean, in the four days that we're there at the Wing Bee, you know, there's this group of 30 of us or so that are processing about 30,000 wings wow. from all the different species that can be harvested in the flyway. And so all of that information together is informative in helping set you know those bag limits which species so for example you can kill you know seven ducks right those could all be mallards they could all be uh drake adult male mallards Mm -hmm. and you can kill out of that seven you can kill two hens right so that's it you can't kill more than two hen mallards and the reason behind that is because we want to protect the population, right? The, the females are the ones that produce the eggs. I've been fortunate enough to take part in these va- banding events mm-hmm. with, with these guys and fortunate enough to actually bring my family out and, you know, and it's, it's pretty neat for me 
to, to bring my son out to something like this and watch, you know, Brandon mentor him in the, you know, the actions and the, and the science behind capturing these birds, uh, bringing them to hand, identifying them, banding them, and then, you know, watching my son release this thing out for someone else to recover somewhere else in the world. Uh, it's, you know, it's, if, if anybody gets a chance to do something like that, I'd, I'd recommend it because it's a, it's a pretty neat event. This is something that we do as biologists on a regular basis, but, but most folks don't have that opportunity to hold a live wild duck in their hands mm-hmm. and, and get that education that Aaron was just talking about. Because during the time that we're banding these birds, um, a, a male mallard doesn't look like a male mallard does in February, right. Right? right? Like in February, that bird has this really bright green head. I mean, their plumage is, they're in breeding plumage, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to attract mates. Mm-hmm. But in August, they're in their eclipse plumage. And so, you know, the males and females look very similar in the species. And then, and then when you're talking about comparing cinnamon teal with blue wing teal that time of year, I mean, it's, it's really hard if you don't know you can misidentify them very, very easily, right. right? And so there's there's certain characteristics of bill length and bill size that help you figure that out. There's certain like very subtle plumage characteristics that help you figure that stuff out. And so getting that kind of an education, you know, or, or even figuring out the sex of the bird, you know, it's like, how do you do that? By just looking at the, the plumage, you know, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes you have to do more. Awesome. Well, uh, we've reached the point here where I'm going to throw this out to the audience. Any questions out there about, yeah, go for it. I have a question. I have read and heard other places that windmills actually kill some of the bigger birds as they fly around. Is that really a true thing that happens? Okay, so the question was related to windmills and how they affect um, birds and, and whether they actually do kill birds. The, the short answer is yes. <laughs> They do. Um, there's there's a, a, almost a disproportionate, I think, impact on eagles in particular. So related to the NCA, you're talking about golden eagles. And we do have, I mean, there are some wind farms. This is something that that is right in my wheelhouse now with my new position is um, reviewing and commenting on these kinds of projects, whether it's a solar farm or a wind farm any of these renewable energy projects that are going on. And there's a big push right now from the federal government to do these things. You know, Idaho Power, I mean, Eric can talk about this too. Like they, they have certain goals that they want to reach for, for producing clean energy. And, um, you know, there are, there are wind facilities not too far from here. I think, you know, just over there north and east of Mountain Home, which really isn't that far. Um, there's some pretty big projects over there for wind, but, but yeah, they, they do, they, they cause, they can cause a, an impact on, on raptor species. They can cause an impact on bats. Um, and so, you know, there are ways to mitigate those impacts and those companies have to have to deal with and address those when it comes to migratory birds, particularly Eagles, you know, that's, that falls in the wheelhouse of the U S fish and wildlife service. Um, because they're, they're protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, I think it's called. But, but yeah, so that's a Fish and Wildlife Service um, component, and, and they usually require that these companies get a take permit and have some sort of mitigation to pay for, to pay for or reduce the impact to eagles. Yeah. My last question, just to kind of wrap things up, is 
Um, for folks who are thinking about or interested in going out and visiting the WMA, any just kind of general guidance or advice, anything folks should be aware of if they're heading out into that area and maybe they've never visited it before? The one thing to remember when heading out there is there's a lot available. Uh, the, the WMA has been used, like we mentioned before, primarily for hunting and fishing access for, what, 70 plus years. Um, but there is, is, is more to do there than just that. And there's more areas to see than where everybody normally heads. There's, I, I think there's four access points that are pretty heavily used. Uh, but what's easy to remember is this is an 11,000 acre wildlife management area and there's a lot of space available. Um, you don't have to this, head to the same four places that everybody else does. Yeah, and, and speaking of those those four most heavily used um, access points, one thing that folks should know is, is we do maintain a nesting closure um, for public access on, on those four points. Um, I can name them real quick. There's uh, Jack's Creek, there's our hot springs segment, um, there's Bruno Duck Ponds, and then there's Bruno Floodplain. Um, so people should be aware of that. Uh, that closure runs February 1 to July 31st uh, per year. And to Aaron's point, there's lots of other areas to go check out and, and go um, recreate and see birds. And, and um, yeah, just a small portion of the year that we shut it down to um, make sure that uh, we're producing as much waterfowl in those most popular uh, areas as, as we can. So we, we do have a lot of information about that on our website, both of our websites actually. Idaho Power has a lot of information on their recreation page and um, fish and game. You know, we've got a, a whole webpage dedicated to just wildlife management areas. And you can go in there and click on all the different wildlife management areas and see maps and just get a better feel for like where the, where the WMA is located, access points, activities that you can do out there. Um, there, you know, contact information, all, all of that's available on the website. And it's really useful. Those maps are, are really useful to lay out kind of what Aaron and Zach just described. Yeah, for anybody that's interested in more information on the Idaho Power properties, at least, uh, just, you know, visit the Idaho Power web, idahopower.com. Uh, there's a tab for our environment. And I also think that it's interesting that, you know, once upon a time, we envisioned a time when public access to places like this would be important. And I think it's really fascinating that right now we're there. We're, we're at that place we envisioned 20, 30 years ago where you know public access sites would be important. The, you know, the population of the Treasure Valley and the surrounding areas has blossomed in the last decade and, and, it, and it's important that we, we're here. Well, thanks to the three of you uh, for, for taking the time to, to have this conversation. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. So we hope that y'all enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for uh, joining and for participating. Thanks for the great questions. That was our conversation with Brandon Flack, Zach Hewling, and Aaron Oots. Brandon and Zach work for the Idaho Fishing Game Department, and Aaron works for Idaho Power, but all three are involved in the management of the CJ Strike Wildlife Management Area. 
If you'd like to learn more about their work and about the CJ Strike WMA, you can find relevant links on the show notes page on our website. Check out birdsofpreyncapartnership.org. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wild Lens Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Steve Alsop. Our theme song is by Like a Rocket. Check out our website for a full list of credits. <laughs>